morning. Thank you for being here today. Um, one of our church members quite unexpectedly uh, lost her granddaughter to a sudden infant death syndrome um, just a little while ago, and the funeral was actually this Wednesday, and of course the family is still grieving and still processing all that, and uh, we're going to pray over uh, the grandmother and the rest of the family this morning, and so if they will come on up, um, we're going to have a time of prayer for them. I, I can't imagine anything that would be a bigger fear of mine than losing a child, and losing a child suddenly. And, uh, you know, it's, it, we don't understand necessarily why these things happen. We understand that we live in a broken world. And we understand that this was not God's perfect plan, but that sin has brought this sort of thing into the world. But they want to come and they want uh, prayer. And I just would ask that if you want to come and just support them by surrounding them, by laying hands on them this morning, we just want to show them that their church family cares and that their church family is here for them and uh, that they can take everything to God. We can trust God, amen? When we're in a, the deepest sorrow we could possibly experience, we can trust that he is there and he loves us and he is working on our behalf. So thank you for coming to pray with us this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that you are in heaven and we are on earth. We know that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. And God, we have to confess that from a limited human level, there are some times where we just don't understand. We just don't understand. God, we're not sure why everything works out the way that it does. God, we have some understanding. We know that sin has broken this world, and we know that there are tragedies, and there is sickness, there's illness, there's death, God. But even though we have that in our understanding, still a lot of times we have the big question of why. God, if we're honest, we just, we, we don't always get it. But Father, we trust you. And Father, we know that anything that you allow you will also help us to get through. And so, Lord, we have a family here that is in need of your Holy Spirit, that's in need of your word, that's in need of your church, the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, to surround them with love right now. And, Lord, we have to just come to a place of contentment with the fact that we may not ever fully understand in this world but we understand that you are good. We understand that you love us. And God, even in our darkest valley, even in the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, God, we know that you're with us and that you bring us comfort even as we walk through that valley. And so, God, I want to pray right now. I want to pray for a family that's grieving I want to thank you for a life, God, even though it was brief, Lord. I thank you for this little girl that was in the world for about five months, God. And I know she touched many with her presence. But, God, I want to pray for this family this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God. I pray that you would touch them. I pray that they could feel and they could sense that you are near to them. God, you're near to the brokenhearted. Speak to them, I pray, God, through whatever means you need to, Lord. We, we know that you'll speak through your word. We know that you'll speak through your church. God, we know that sometimes you speak through a still, small voice that's almost imperceptible. But God, we pray that you would speak to them, speak to their hearts, speak peace, we pray, to this storm. And God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of church that when something like this happens, that people don't feel like they're alone. They don't feel like there's no one that cares. But that we would be the kind of church where they feel surrounded by 
not only the arms of Jesus, but by the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, by the body of Christ. Lord, we're about to have a sermon, and, and, and God, we're going to hear some of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak that to our hearts. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that is wrestling with what we're going to be talking about, God, I pray that you would break down any wall, you would break through any barrier, and that by your Holy Spirit you would bring healing, you would bring restoration. God, we thank you that you are a healer. We thank you that you care about us, God. You're not distant. You're not off somewhere just looking down on this earth and not caring, but God, you walk beside of us. And through Jesus, you live in us. And God, I pray right now with this family that if there's anybody that does not have Jesus as Savior, that the Holy Spirit has not taken up residence within their life, within their being, that even through this, God, they might come to know you in that way. Speak to us today. Help us to honor you. God, help us to put the world out of our mind for just a little bit so we can focus on what you're saying to us. Help us not to think about where we're going to be eating later today or what we're going to do with family later today, God, or even work on Monday, God. Help us to put that out of our minds long enough that we can hear what the Spirit is saying today. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt the name of Jesus. We thank you that he died for us, but he did not stay dead. He rose again victorious. And because of his victory, we can also have victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. And Rushwood Church said together, amen. Thank you for praying with us this morning. When, when tragedy strikes, I always wonder how people who don't know God get through. And when tragedy strikes, I always wonder how people who don't have a church family that loves them and can surround them, I, I wonder how they get through. I think it's so precious, so precious to have God in our lives, to have His Holy Spirit living within us, and I think it's extremely precious to have a church family that can come around you in times of sorrow and in times of grief and in times of trial. Uh, I do thank you guys for praying for me. Uh, I did get back um, good results early this week. They did say my cholesterol was too high and uh, Gib Coltrane pointed out that they say that to a lot of old people so I, I don't know what that means. But evidently the type of cancer I have, uh, it actually, and not that I'm in great shape, that doesn't help either, but they, they said the type of cancer I have actually makes your cholesterol go up pretty strongly. So I've got to look at that, and for the first time in my life, I'm looking at the back of packages and seeing what the cholesterol level is and all that sort of thing. But hey, that's better than a recurrence of cancer. So thank you guys for praying and uh, that, I, that I got a clean bill of health for the most part uh, when I went back earlier in the week. Um, so it does mean a lot to have a church family that surrounds you with prayers and with love and concern as we go through tough times. And uh, you know what? We want more people to have a church family. About 81% of Randolph County is not in church on a regular basis. You think of that, only about 19% of people in Randolph County actually are in church. We think, we think Randolph County is the Bible Belt and everybody is in church but it's just simply not, not true. Most people do not have a church family that they can call on in times of grief. And so we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus in reaching more people and bringing them in, not only to this church, but if, they, if this church doesn't work for them, we'd like to help them to get into a church that does work for them because we believe everybody needs a good church family. Um, but on the way in, you should have gotten a card this morning. Yes, Easter is coming. We're in the season of Lent. If you didn't get one of these, you can get one on the way out. But these are our postcards that talk about our Easter season and what's especially going to be going on right around Easter. These are a great tool to use to invite somebody to come to our Easter services. 
We always gear our Easter services for families, and we try to be really, really conscious that there are people who will show up on Easter who may not, we may not see them again until next Christmas. So it may be the only chance we have to get the gospel to them and to get them surrounded by the love that a church can offer. And so if you have your card, you can see that we have on Palm Sunday, April 14th, our Rushwood kids are going to be singing. I'm going to be preaching on the raising up of Lazarus. And then at 6 o'clock that night, the senior adult choir is going to give their concert. And so there's some opportunities there. Then we will have our Good Friday service. Uh, that will be April 19th at 7 p.m. That is one of my favorite services of the year, by the way. We started that, uh, when, actually I started that as a minister at my last church doing a Good Friday service. And I just think that's the day that honors when Jesus actually laid down his life for us. And I don't think we can really let that day pass without having some form of worship service to praise him for his sacrifice. And I also think Good Friday service does an awesome job of setting us up for a celebration on Resurrection Sunday morning. We celebrate that Jesus did not stay in that tomb, but he came forth victorious. And so our Easter Sunday, that'll be April 21st. It's a little later this year. Um, but at 10 a.m., we'll have free family portraits that you can have made, and you'll be able to pick them up on Sunday, May 5th. At 10.30, we will have, my sermon will be the victory of Jesus Christ, and we're going to have our baptism service. If you are a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you have made that decision to follow him and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. It's an outward expression of what God has done in your life. And I've already talked to a few of our folks around here. Have you been baptized? And they say, no, I haven't been baptized. I said, you need to go ahead and get ready to sign up and be baptized. What better time to be baptized than Easter Sunday morning? As we share in his death, the Bible says, we also share in his resurrection. And so if you have not been baptized, you say, well, I was baptized as a child, okay? I was in some sort of tradition or background where I was baptized as a child. Okay, but I believe once you decide that you want to follow Jesus Christ, once, you want to, once you've decided to make him the Lord of your life, then you need to testify to that. You need to go public. People in this culture, they go public with all sorts of stuff. They're proud about what they are, what they're doing, whatever, and they go public with everything. Christians need to go public with their faith. And so I would encourage you, if you have not been baptized, Easter Sunday will be your Sunday. Sign up for that. It's going to be a wonderful time. And then afterwards, as we do every year, we have our free community hot dog luncheon. People can come to that if they don't come to service, but of course we'd love for them to come to service. We'd rather them come to service and hear the gospel first. And then we're going to have our Easter egg hunt, which is ages 11 and under. My oldest son is 12, so he doesn't get to do the Easter egg hunt anymore, and a lot of you guys don't either. But uh, we will have that for ages 11 and under. So we got some good stuff going on, and uh, we've already been talking about the music that we have planned. It's going to be amazing during that time. Our, our sermons hopefully will be good. Y'all pray for me that God will lay the right things on my heart to bring to you. But the big thing is invite somebody. 80%. 80% around of Randolph Countyans do not go to church on a regular basis on Sunday morning. But statistics also tell us 80% of people who are not in church would go to church if somebody who is a close family or friend invited them to come to church with them. So 80% of the people that you know would come to church, they would at least give it a try if you would start to work on them and invite them. And I've told you this before, I haven't said it in a while, but they say on average you need to invite somebody to church 21 times, 21 times before they're actually going to show up with you to worship. So you need to go ahead and start working on somebody. Ask God to lay the person on your heart that needs to be here. Go ahead and start inviting them, working on them, asking God whatever you need to do to get them in church. It's not that you don't need to witness on an individual basis. You do. But it is a great way to witness. It is a great way to get people to the gospel, to have them to come to church with you, hear the gospel, and see what God can do in this place. We believe that lives can be made new. And we believe that love can be made visible through what we do. By the way, if you come in, you'll notice we have a new sign up that actually has our mission statement. It looks great right out here in the foyer. Look to your left on the way out. Um, but we believe God can transform people with the gospel. And you can help us to get the gospel to these folks. And so I just want to encourage you in that way this morning. 
Well, if you've got your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. You can have a, a paper version of the Bible or you can look it up on your phone. That's the only thing you really need to be doing on your phone while I'm preaching. But hey, if, you, if that's what you want to do, you can take notes. You can look it up digitally or you can go old school. I like old school because I like to write in my Bible and make notes and underline and all that sort of thing. Um, but if you want to go digital, that will work as well. But turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. We're going to be continuing our series, The Seven Signs of Lazarus. The seven, or, I'm sorry, The Seven Signs of John. I'm thinking ahead, we're going to end with Lazarus. The Seven Signs of John with the healing of the lame man. How many of you enjoyed the series so far? We're only, this is the third weekend. I've enjoyed preaching it. It's been a, a real blessing to me. If you weren't here, basically here's the premise. There are seven signs in John that the book of John actually specifically states are there to give us faith in Jesus Christ and to help us understand the power that there is in his name. That's one of the reasons we sang that song this morning about the great I am. There's power in the name of God. There's power in the name of Jesus. By the way, when we sing songs on Sunday morning, when we worship, we don't just arbitrarily pick songs. We try to pick songs that go with the sermon, that go with the theme that will prepare you to receive what God would have you receive during the sermon time, during the message time. And so um, give it up to our worship team for their preparation, for their heart. Um, we don't just throw stuff out there and hope it sticks. We actually ask God what songs and what music would work to help our worship and to aid what we talk about in the sermon time. But John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible this morning. God's Word says, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now we're not sure what feast of the Jews that was. It was either Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. We can tell with all the content, content context surrounding it, that it was either, either Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. But Jesus went up to this high holy feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Now you say, what's, what's a portico? A portico, these were like porches with roofs on top of them, probably so that people could be shaded from the sun. So imagine these porches sitting around, they have roofs, people are laying there around these pools, people are resting and being protected from the sun. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so the Jews were actually, and by the way, praise God for his word and the reading of his word this morning. The Jews were actually wanting to do away with Jesus. They were actually wanting to kill Jesus because he was healing people. 
He was making people better. He was restoring them. He was making them whole, but he was doing it on the Sabbath day. And so for that reason, they wanted to kill Jesus. Man, religion can get crazy, can't it? Man-made rules can get crazy. Here's the Son of God healing people, restoring people. And these teachers of the law, these Jewish people were criticizing him. And not only criticizing him, they were wanting to destroy him because he was not keeping their man-made rules We've seen that, and that's a different sermon for a different day, but you've probably seen that in your lifetime where man-made rules keep the Spirit from moving, keep Jesus from doing what He wants to do in people's lives because we're so caught up on man-made rules. But I really need to get back to the story. When you read the Bible, by the way, if you're going through the Bible, a great principle of Bible study is when you come upon a place name. Now, not every place name has a translation. Not every place name has a meaning. But a lot of times, Old Testament and New, when you come upon a place name, there may be some significance in the original language to that name. For instance, this happens, this miracle happens in Jerusalem. And by the way, now it's easy. You used to have to have all sorts of things to help you research that. Now you can just Google it. You can Google, what does Jerusalem mean? And it'll give you the answer of what Jerusalem means. But this happened in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem means the city of what? Anybody know? Nobody knows. City of peace. The city of peace. Jerusalem, Salem, peace. The city of peace is where this happened. It happened at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means the house of mercy. Anytime you see the word Beth as part of a place name in the Bible, anytime you see that, it actually is going to mean house of something. You have Bethel in the Old Testament, which means house of God. And later Bethel is named El Bethel, which means God of the house of God. In the New Testament, you have Bethsaida, which means the house of fish. It was a fishing village, and so they named it Bethsaida, the house of fish. Where Jesus was born, I love this little interesting Bible fact for you. Jesus was born in the city of what? Bethlehem. Y'all knew that one. And Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. So Jesus was the bread of life, and he was born in a city that means the house of bread. I love how God just wove everything together. The more you study, the more you learn that God was behind it all, working in it all. But Bethesda, where this man was healed at the pool, actually means the house of mercy. The house of mercy. So this miracle happened at the house of mercy in the city of peace. The house of mercy in the city of peace. I was doing some research for this sermon and I listened to how different pastors actually handled this passage. And one guy pointed out that the house of mercy and the city of peace, that would probably be in our day and time the church. That would probably be God's people. We should be the house of mercy. We should be the city of peace. We should not intimidate people into not wanting to be part of our fellowship because we think we're so good and we're on our high horse all the time and we're looking down at everybody and we're judging everybody. We should not have that attitude, but we should be a people of mercy and we should want to see peace brought to everybody. We should have that sort of attitude. But mercy is exactly what this man needed. This man who had been there for 38 years, having this illness for 38 years, he, he needed mercy more than anything else. Last week we talked about the father whose son was healed by Jesus. And I told you, I love this guy. I love this guy's attitude. I love uh, some of his qualities. This seemed to be just a great guy. He had some wonderful qualities that we can pick up on. This guy, if you really take a slow reading of the passage and really try to dissect it, this guy had some bad qualities. He had some qualities that weren't so great. This man who had been ill for 38 years. The passage, in fact, reveals some profound character flaws in this gentleman. But here's what I love about Jesus. He heals both of them. He meets both their needs. The man whose son needed healing, who seemed to be a great guy and a great father, Jesus meets his need. And this guy who seems to have some profound character flaws, Jesus meets his need as well. Here's what I wrote in my notes. The good, the bad, and the ugly, Jesus loves them all. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus is willing to heal anyone who will come to him in faith. And so it's interesting how Jesus kind of starts this conversation out with this man. The first thing Jesus said to him, and remember the Bible says there's multitudes, 
These porches are just covered with people. But for some reason, Jesus picks this man out of the crowd. And he walks up to him, and the first thing that Jesus said to him is, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? That's a profound question. It shows you that Jesus is smarter than we are. Because we assume that everybody who's sick, everybody that's got a problem, everybody that's got an issue wants to get over that problem or issue. We assume that everybody wants to be made well. But Jesus knew that not everybody wants to be made well. Not everybody wants to have their problem solved. I know when I went into teaching, and I was a public school teacher for about eight years. And by the way, I love, I've got like former students all over the place that come to, to our church. I just love that. That's great how God put all that together. But when I went into teaching, I thought every kid that I taught, every student that I taught, whatever their problem was, they'd want to overcome that problem, and they'd want to be made well, and I could help them by, by just being patient with them and kind to them and showing them some things. I just thought, I can help everybody. And I figured out real quick, I mean, I probably didn't even make it to Halloween my first year before I figured out not everybody wants to be made well. Not all of them wanted their problems solved. Not all of them wanted help. And there's all sorts of things. If we were a counselor or a psychologist, we could get on all the reasons for that. But not every one of them wanted help. Not every one of them wanted to be made well. Some of them did. I had a kid my first semester teaching. The year before I had come to teach, he had failed every one of his classes that semester. Every single class. He got in my class, he had artistic ability, I worked with him, I gave him some confidence, and all of a sudden his grades turned around and he passed every class that semester with an A, B, or C. So some people wanted to be made well, but not everybody wants to be made well. When I started out as a full-time minister, I think I made the same mistake again. I assumed that everybody wants to spiritually be made well. I assume that everybody wants to follow Jesus. You know, just with a little encouragement and love and everything, they'll eventually get there. But I found out it's not the case. Not everybody wants to be spiritually healed. Not everybody wants to be physically healed. Not everybody wants to be made well. And so Jesus is smarter than us. He went right to the heart of the matter for this man. Do you even want to be made well, dude? That's my translation, not the real translation. But that, that's basically what he was saying. Do you want to be made well. And I want you to notice something about this man. He did not say yes. Nowhere in the text did he say yes, Jesus, or yes. He didn't even, he didn't even know who Jesus was at that point, but he never said, yes, I want to be made well. Can you help me? He never says that one single time. He did not answer in the affirmative. Never says yes to Jesus' question. I believe that this man's story has a lot to say to us in our day. I believe there's a window from the past into where we are right now in our culture. Because I believe that this man is the epitome of a mentality that is all over our nation right now, all over our culture right now. I believe he's the epitome of a mentality that's all over businesses, schools, homes, churches, our nation as a whole. And that mentality is the victim mentality. The victim mentality. I didn't put it in my notes, but I was thinking about the story that broke just a couple of months ago. This guy named Jussie Smollett, who was a big-time actor on a primetime television show, seemed to have everything going for him, but he couldn't play the victim card, so he actually hired some people to victimize him. And he put it out all over, and all of a sudden, all the news outlets were putting it everywhere, and all how terrible this guy had been treated, and he tried to play the victim card, and it wasn't true at all. He made it all up. But that shows you how strong the victim mentality is in our culture and in our nation right now. That somebody who has seemingly everything going for them attaches themselves to it, even if they have to fake it, even if they have to hire people to try to perpetrate something against them. Wrote a letter to himself like he was being abused and he was being persecuted. The victim mentality is everywhere. I found this online description, definition of the victim mentality. And it is defined as a psychological term that refers to a type of dysfunctional mindset which seeks to feel persecuted in order to gain attention or avoid self-responsibility. People who struggle with the victim mentality are convinced that life is not only beyond their control but is out to deliberately hurt them. This belief results in constant blame, finger-pointing, and pity parties that are fueled by pessimism, fear, and anger. And then I found another site that added this. 
A person with a victim identity is someone who has identified with whatever crises, trauma, illnesses, or other difficulties have occurred in their lives. Anybody ever dealt with somebody with a victim mentality? Anybody ever had to deal? It, it can be very, very tough. And it, any, any of us can fall into it. Because we live in a broken world, because we live in a world that, that is in sin and is not the way it should be, all of us are victimized from time to time. All of us have issues that come into our lives from time to time. We're all the victims of something, so we can all fall into this trap of being part of the victimhood mentality or the victim mentality. It's kind of ironic that this man couldn't walk because this mentality is actually crippling. This mentality actually cripples you spiritually, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally. So when he answers, when Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well, this guy doesn't say yes to Jesus. Instead, he says, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. I was listening to one preacher. He said, I think that should be read this way. Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And we should read it that way. Like, eh, poor me. Point number one this morning. People with a victim mentality make excuses not to try. People with a victim mentality make excuses not to try. I mean, I hope some of you are. I know some of you are probably sitting there saying, Brent, you're being too harsh. Brent, you're being too tough on this guy. But look, this guy's been there for 38 years. You're telling me, I'm 39 years old. You're telling me that this guy's been there for most of my lifetime and he never once could get in the pool? He never once could be the first one. He couldn't talk to anybody and say, hey, look, when the water's troubled again, will you help me? I've been here for 36 years. Can you guys help me? To he couldn't do that one time, not once. I mean, I think I'd be like laying on the edge. I think I'd be right there, like one arm already hanging in the pool, right? And when the water's troubled, I'd just bloop, I'd be right in there, you know? I think that's what I would do. I'd be ready to stop, drop, and roll like they used to teach us back in school. But instead, this guy's waiting for somebody else to do it for him. And so it never happens because nobody else ever does it for him. He has all kinds of excuses. Let me tell you something I tell my family, I tell my, my family all the time. If you want an excuse, you'll always find one lying around somewhere. Excuses are everywhere. If you want to find an excuse for why you can't do this, or you can't succeed in that, or why somebody's better than you, or whatever, you can always, always, always find an excuse. They're everywhere. Proverbs 22, verse 13 gives us an example of a, an excuse. It says the lazy person claims, there's a lion out there. If I go outside, I might be killed. Say, so just stay inside and do nothing. There's always, even if it's a ridiculous excuse, there's always an excuse. But there's a flip side to that. If you are not willing to accept excuses, it's amazing what you can accomplish. If you are not willing to give yourself excuses, it's amazing what you can accomplish in this world and how many things will be possible to you. There's a guy named Nick Vujicic. Some of you, I know I've showed a video on him before several years ago, so many of you may have already heard of Nick Vujicic. But this guy's one of my heroes. He's an evangelist who was born without arms or legs. All he has is what he calls, this is his term, not mine, he calls one little chicken foot on his left side with just two toes on it. That's all this guy has for limbs. But this is a man who was born without arms or legs or excuses. And so this morning, I want you to watch a video of Nick Vujicic. It's just a couple of minutes long, and ironically, it has to deal with a pool. We're talking about a man and a pool this morning. Here is a guy who has a pool, and he has no excuses. Let's watch Nick Vujicic and just be amazed at how this guy moves forward in life. It's an overworked word, but there's no other way to describe Nick Vujicic. He really is inspiring. Nick was born without arms or legs. And when he tells the story of his birth, the shock, the confusion suffered by his parents, he'll have you in tears. Growing up wasn't all that much fun either. So how did this poor little Aussie kid do so well? Become school captain, go to uni, get a double degree, and set himself up in a really great job? That's the story we're about to tell. A message of hope that's helped teenagers all over the world cope with their problems. 
message you'll never forget. Should jump in, mate. Nick Boychich was born with no legs and no arms. I'm going out on a limb, what do you want? <laughs> but he sure got plenty of guts. This is scary, right here, mate. We gotta have guts. Oh. You're a bit crazy. Ten. Nice, mate. Thank you very much. You're a generous judge. <laughs> this 25-year-old Australian is climbing over every obstacle life puts in front of him. And he's doing it with style. You really can do anything, can't you? <laughs> There's no harm in Guys, since the sound's messed up, we can cut it there. That gives you the, the point of it. He goes on to say, at one point he was suicidal. At one point he actually laid in the bathtub in his parents' house and was going to kill himself. But he, he decided not to do that. He found Jesus Christ... And he decided that he would start looking at every day not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. And so this fella here, I wanted to show you some more about him. Hopefully we got the picture of him. That's him doing his missions work. He's an evangelist. This guy with no arms, no legs, has led half a million people around the world to Jesus Christ through his ministries. And that's him with some of the kids he's worked with in Asia. He also got married. That's his wedding picture. And this is his wife and his four kids. No excuses. No excuses. Everything in the world against him, but he did not make excuses. Instead, he used everything that God had given him to make a good life and to impact this world for Jesus Christ. But the lame man by the pool saw only problems and made only excuses. If we'll not make excuses, if we'll instead use what God has given us and see every day as an opportunity, it's amazing what God can do through us. When we lay around and say, I just can't because of this or because of that, we will never get there. But if we say, you know what, I'm putting the past things behind and I'm moving forward with God wherever he takes me, trusting him, believing in him, we'll find that we have the strength to do amazing things, not in and of ourselves. If you hear Nick Vujicic's testimony, he says, this is not about me being a conqueror. This is not about me being greater or stronger or better than anybody else. This is about Jesus Christ and what he can do through anybody. That's what it's about. Jesus can do amazing things. If he can do amazing things through Nick Vujicic, he can do amazing things through you and me as well if we'll leave our excuses behind. Point number two. People with a victim mentality blame other people for their own issues. People with a victim mentality blame other people for their own issues. Excuse me. Man at the pool. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So he's blaming somebody else. You know, I would get there. I've been here for 38 years, but for 38 straight years, somebody's beat me into that pool when the healing starts to happen. For 38 straight years, it's their fault. Blame them. It's their, they're the reason that I'm not successful. They're the reason that I'm not doing more for God. They're the reason. It's their fault. If it wasn't for them. Isn't that so prevalent in our nation today? One group of people blaming another group of people blaming another group of people blaming another group of people. They're doing this. And if they wouldn't do this, and if it wasn't for that, and, and we have all these excuses and reasons and all these blame, this blame that we put on other people. Look, if you have a pulse this morning, everybody have a pulse? Do like this. You can check real quick. Just make sure. Sometimes I wonder on Sunday mornings, but y'all are doing pretty good this morning. So, but you might want to check. Do you have a pulse this morning? If you have a pulse, somebody somewhere has wronged you sometime. Somebody else has cut you off. We were driving in Charlotte yesterday. My wife found some furniture online. Praise the Lord, we made it back alive. That was crazy. I mean, traffic was crazy. And I was following my wife. She had the GPS, and she knew where she was going. She had the addresses that she had found. And so I was following her. We are in two separate vehicles. And, man, people were cutting her off left and right. And I thought, I mean, literally, I think we were in a wreck about four or five times yesterday. Somebody cut me off. Somebody got in front of me. So if they wouldn't have done this, there's always going to be somebody doing something to you. It's just part of the human condition. It's just part of what happens in this world. Everybody has been done wrong. 
If you've never been done, in your, we'll do a little poll real quick. If you've never been done but wrong by anybody in your entire life, will you raise your hand? We want, you to know, we, want, we want you to tell us how you got that done. Nobody raised their hand because we've all been done wrong. We've all been hurt. When I taught middle school, my students, they called me Mr. T. I didn't ever have the, the, the mohawk and the chains and stuff like that. You guys are young, don't get that. 80s people, we get that. But they would say, Mr. T, that's just not fair. And my reply to them was, you're right, it's not. It's not fair, and you might as well go ahead and get used to it because in life there's going to be a lot of things that aren't fair. There's going to be a lot of mistreatment that comes your way. It's never going to be fair, totally fair in this world, so you might as well get used to it. I saw a clip last week of former UNC point guard. By the way, Duke fans, aren't you glad we let you have one? I heard what happened. Mike Krzyzewski called up Roy and he said, look, Roy, I'm 89 years old. I don't know if you know that. The shoe polish on my hair kind of hides it, but I'm 89 and... Uh, and we've, we spent a lot putting this team together. And I, I'm just ashamed that you keep beating me with walk-ons and transfers. So can you let us have one? And Roy said, look, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you win one by one point. Now, I can't let you win the NCAA because we're going to win that one. But I will let you have one game by one point. And, and, and Coach K said, if that's the best I can get, I'll have to take it. So that's what happened there. I don't know if you'd heard that or not, but that's what happened there. Yeah, absolutely. But I saw a clip this week, being serious, of uh, UNC point guard Joel, ba Joel Berry giving his senior speech back in 2018. And in his sp senior speech, he said, I've never told the coaches this before, but back when I was a freshman, I was not getting any playing time. Not getting any playing time. And he said, I started to blame the coaches. I started to blame Coach Roy and the other coaches. And he said, I was getting depressed, and I was getting despondent, and I was going back to my dorm room, and I was talking to my teammates around the dorm and telling them, you know, I don't know why I'm not getting more playing time. I think I'm better than this. And he said, you know, we, we were talking about that. And he said, then I called my mom and dad. And he said, I told my mom and dad, look, I'm not sure if this is for me. I've been dreaming about being a Carolina player my whole life. I've been watching them, you know, my whole life. But I don't know. Maybe this just isn't for me because they're not giving me any playing time. And he said his parents, instead of saying, well, you know what, honey, we'll come in and we'll sign that transfer paper. We'll get you to another university, you know, where you can maybe have some more playing time. They just don't know how good my baby is. They just don't. They didn't do that. Instead, his mom and dad said, well, why don't you quit blaming them and look at yourself? What reason are you giving them to put you out on the court? What reason are you giving them to trust in you as the point guard of this team? And he said that changed everything around for him. All of a sudden, he stopped making excuses, and he started saying, what can I do to make this team better? What can I do uh, to improve myself and my play? And if you'll remember, in 2017, he became uh, the Final Four MVP. But he said it totally turned everything around because I stopped making excuses. I stopped blaming other people, and I started putting the pressure on myself and making myself step up. There are 7 billion people on this earth. And out of those 7 billion people, there is only one person that you can fully control. Sometimes not even that. But one person that you have full control over, you have free will over, and that is yourself. You can't control what other people do to you. You can't control necessarily what other people think about you. You can't control that. All you can do is control what you do and the decisions that you make. To get over the victim mentality, you have to stop blaming other people and start seeing what you can do about your situation. Start right where you are. One last point. One last point that comes from this story. Point number three, people with a victim mentality fail to admit their part in their own problems. People with a victim mentality fail to admit their part in their own problems problems. Toward the end of the story, after Jesus has healed the man, Jesus finds the man in the temple, and he tells him, you're well now, so stop sinning so something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, some people have taken this verse, and they have made a theology. They've made a doctrine out of it, which is not true. And that doctrine is, if you have some sort of problem, if you have some sort of sickness, some sort of ailment, it must be because of some sin that is in your life. That is not true. 
That's not what the Bible is even trying to teach there. Now, all our sicknesses, all our diseases, all our ailments are the result of sin that came into this world. Back in the, when Adam and Eve opened that gate, opened that door, and it came into this world, all of our problems are a result of that. But the sicknesses and ailments and problems you have may not be a result of something you're doing, some sin that you're doing wrong. And so we don't want to get our doctrine and our theology wrong on that because it's just simply not true. Sometimes we have issues as a, as a result of living in a fallen and broken world. But... In this case, Jesus pretty much indicates this man's condition was the result of his sin. Because he comes to him, he says, look, I made you well. Now you're good. You need to stop sinning because if you get back to sinning, something even worse may come upon you. Something even worse may happen to you. So that indicates that this man's sin was part of the problem. But nowhere in this story does that man ever admit that he's a sinner. Sometimes people come to Jesus and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Not this guy. Not this guy. He never admits that he's a sinner. He never owns up to it. When the Jewish leaders come to him and they get on to him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath day, which, by the way, there is nothing in the law in the Old Testament, there's nothing in the law of Moses that said you cannot carry a mat on a Sabbath day. On a Sabbath day, you were not supposed to engage in your profession. You were not supposed to engage in your trade. But there was nothing that said you couldn't carry your mat. They had gone above the law, beyond the law, and had made their own rules. But when they accost him about this, he tries to throw Jesus under the bus. The one that just healed him. He says, look, the man who healed me, he's the one that told me to do it. In other words, don't bother me about it. Go find the guy that healed me. It's his fault. This guy has some problems. Some major problems. There is no restoration alongside of self-justification. When we try to justify ourselves, when we try to say we do everything right, when we try to say there's no sin within us, then God can't work with that. God can't work with a person who thinks that they're perfect. God can't work with somebody who thinks they've never done anything wrong and always tries to justify themselves. When we confess our sins, then God can work with us. Then he can start to turn things around. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. This guy just could not bring himself to admit that he was a major part of his own problems, that he was a major player in the things that were going on in his life. When we have a victimhood mindset, we're like that. We cannot play the victim if we admit that we've done it to ourselves. Y'all probably told you part of the story a while back, our German shepherd uh, actually uh, wandered off, got onto Highway 64, was, was struck and killed. And so we lost that dog. We actually had two German shepherds, and then, then another one about a month later died of old age. So we lost both of our German shepherds. And Pastor Jason, he's not here today. His family's been to Kentucky, and they toured the ark, which he may tell you all about that sometime. Um, but Jason said, you know what? My cousin from Maryland, he's got this German shepherd. It is a beautiful dog. And he will, he'll bring it, uh, he, let me call him, I think he'd bring it down to you. That should have been our first clue, right? Dude going to drive down from Maryland to bring us a dog. But anyway, he had a beautiful dog. We saw the pictures, beautiful German shepherd. Dog's name was Dano, which we probably wouldn't have named him that, but that was the dog's name, Dano. So he brought this dog down. And we could tell him a beautiful dog, and he was a little hyper and, you know, and, and some issues there. But we thought, you know, after a while, we'll love on him, we'll work with him. He'll kind of fit in. He'll kind of be okay. Well, we had him for about a couple of months, and mostly he had calmed down and he had fit in. But he still, once in a while, would just kind of spaz out a little bit. And we came in one night. We'd been gone most of the day, and he was inside, and my wife went over and started petting the dog. And my daughter, Ayla, walked up to pet the dog as well. All of a sudden, the dog turned around and bared his teeth toward my daughter and growled at her. And I said, what did you do there? I said, Let's, I said hold him tight. Let's try that again. Let's see what he does. Maybe he just didn't recognize her. Maybe something was going on there. And so anyway, I said, hey, let's take a, another step toward him. And he did it again. I said, oh, no, he's gone. He's gone. Because, look, I, and I'll tell you something right now. In this society, we get it messed up. People are here and animals are here. 
People are here, animal. Pets are down here somewhere. People are up here somewhere. We're created in the image of God, not a German shepherd. As beautiful and wonderful as they are, they're a dog. Can't mess with my kid. And I, and I said, he's gone. We'll, we'll call somebody up. And we actually found a family in the church that was able to take him and put him in a better situation. But the next morning, the next morning as they were loading him up to take him away from our house into their house, he was looking at me so sad and so pitiful. And I said, dog, don't look at me like that. You did this to yourself. You did this to yourself. Y'all, a lot of times God could look at us and say, don't look at me like that. You did this to yourself. You're the one that made those decisions. You're the one who's messed up. You're the one who has got yourself in this situation. So when we have the victim mentality, a lot of times we just won't admit our own sin and we can't prosper and we can't be healed until we admit our own sin. So let me end up with this. How do we overcome the victim mentality? I think the, same, the answer is in the same passage. John chapter 5 and verse 15 says, The man finally, finally this guy, toward the end of the story, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. This man finally recognized himself as a person that Jesus had healed. His identity, instead of being finally at the end of the story, instead of his identity being in this 38 years of being an invalid and having all these problems and other people getting in first and nobody to help him, and all, instead of getting himself wrapped up in that and having that as his identity, he finally decided, my identity is going to be in Jesus Christ. He's the one that healed me. And that's where the story is left. That's where we, we leave this guy. But he finally recognized healing through Jesus Christ. Y'all, I'm telling you, any of us can fall into the victimhood mentality. Any of us can do that. It can happen to any of us at all. In fact, I think I fell into it for, for a while. I think I had a period in my life, and it's not been that long ago, where I fell into that. If you don't know the story about everything, this church was basically a dead church. A lot of people didn't. This, this sanctuary, this worship center, was originally designed to hold 1,000 people. A thousand people in Ashboro. But anyway, it was designed to hold with the choir, which we don't have anymore. But with everything, it was designed to hold a thousand people. Then through splits and splinters and all sorts of issues, this church ended up with about 70 people attending it. So you got 70 people attending a, a, sanctu in a sanctuary designed to hold a thousand people. This church was basically dead. And so through, through God's will and God's providence and everything else, I ended up as the pastor here, and everybody kind of figured, well, Brent will just preside over the funeral. But God started to work, and God started to move, and people started to come in, and new people joined the church, and, and God just worked things out where instead of dying, we survived, and we began to thrive. Really good things began to happen in this church. And, I mean, we were on a trajectory which was just amazing at one point. And we're still on a good trajectory, but it's changed a little bit from that point. But then things started to happen. First of all, my wife and I lost a baby, which was devastating to our family. And we kind of moved on and soldiered on and tried to work through it. But that was kind of the first blow. And then I found out I had cancer, and that was kind of the second blow. And then a little bit later, there was a threat of a cancer recurrence, stage two and all that sort of thing. And I said, then within the congregation, we got some people who realized, I don't know why it took them this long, but after a while, we had some people in the congregation who realized Brent is really a biblical conservative. It might be a modern church. They might have lights on the stage, and they might have modern worship and everything else, but Brent is really biblically conservative. And I think maybe I said something against Disney or something like that. But anyway, boom, we had, which I should have, I was still right, but we had all of a sudden, boom, People went out one side. And then I said, then we had people who figured out, guess what? We're never going back to being the church that we were in the late 80s and the early 90s. Weren't going back that direction. We were going a whole new direction. And all of a sudden, I don't know why I didn't own them before, but they figured that out and they were out the other end. So all of a sudden we had like this mass exodus of people that my wife and I had really poured our hearts into and loved on. And I mean, well, I won't get into everything, but it was like we were there for a lot of these folks in amazing ways, and all of a sudden, they ghosted on us. They were gone, both ends at one time. And I kind of felt like, God, why did you bring me here? Because starting this thing back up, turning this thing back around, nobody will ever know, and I'm not trying to play the victim, and I'm not trying to, to shine a light on my family or anything like that, but nobody will ever know how much we went through to get that done. 
the sacrifices we made and everything else. So we had all that. And then all of a sudden, people I had loved on and poured my heart into, and look, I attach to people. If I'm not careful, I get my heart caught up in people, and I care about them, and I love them, and I think you got to do that to be a good pastor. I just do. I think you have to do that. But all of a sudden, these people disappeared, and when they disappeared, they started saying things. And one guy even called me a legalist, and I was like, dude, if you think I'm a legalist, you, might, you must not know the real legalist because I know them, and I don't think I'm one of them. But, I mean, we had all this sort of thing happen, and, and, and then the sickness and everything else, and I finally got to the point where I thought, what good is any of it? You love people. You're there for them. You go the extra mile to be, be there when they need you. you. You do all this. What good is any of it if in just an instant, if you say something or do something they don't like, boom, they'll turn around and they're gone. And so I got into this big old pity party. And I started seeing myself as a victim. Poor, poor me. All that we went through, all that we did, people treat us this way. And I got into this victimhood mentality. And it carried on for a while. And about the same time, I was in kind of a level of depression and all this. I mean, it just all was there together. And I started to see myself as a victim of my circumstances. And I started to see myself through the lens of what people had done to me. And I just, I just got caught up in it. But praise God, through prayer and through other people praying and, and through actually when I took the sabbatical last summer, that was a good time to get along with God and seek God. And God started to speak to me again. And he said, you know what, Brent? You're not a victim. Brent, that's not your identity. What people have done to you, what you've been through, the hardships your family has been through, losing a baby and cancer and cancer scares and all this sort of thing, that's not your identity. Your identity is somebody that I healed, somebody that I loved, somebody that I saved, somebody that I called, somebody that I've restored. That's your identity. Brent, walk in that. Don't walk in your victimhood. Don't walk around, oh, poor me. Nobody's there to help me. No, you can't walk in that. Walk in the victory that I've given you. And praise God, this morning my identity is I'm a victor in Jesus Christ. I'm a victor through him. I know that I'm not that good in and of myself. I know that I'm not that special. I know that I'm not that great of a preacher or that great of a leader or anything else. But I know that my God is great. I know that my God is wonderful. I know that my God is worthy to be praised. And I know that he lives inside of me and he is fighting for me. He's for me. He's not against me. The world can be against me, but that's not my identity. My identity is who I am in Jesus Christ. And this morning, if you've got a victim mentality going on or if you're tempted to feel that way, and look, I know a lot of us have been through a lot of things. My story, some of you are looking at it and saying, that's all you had was cancer and you lost a child and some people were mean to you. That's really, that's it? Let me tell you what I've been through. I get it, y'all. I get it. A lot of us have gone through a lot of things, but that's not our identity. As a Christian, our identity is in Jesus Christ. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor in him, and you are too. You are too this morning. Yeah, go ahead and give him some praise. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand, and our worship team is going to end with a song we've never done here before. Yeah, go ahead and stand. Our team has never done this song before, but I, we found this song, and I thought, man, this is just perfect for what I'm preaching on today. Julia is going to sing it for you, and I just want you to, to invite you. If you are tempted to identify yourself by your troubles and your heartaches and your problems and your pain, if you're, a tr if you're tempted to make that your identity, don't make that your identity. Make your identity be in Jesus Christ. Let it be in his victory. Let it be in what he has done for you. And if you need to come this morning and you need to just declare, I am a victor in Jesus Christ. He won the battle for me. I'm identified with him. He is my healer. He is my savior. He is my Lord. If you need to come and you need to declare that to yourself and to everybody here and to everybody watching online, if you need to do that this morning, I invite you to come and say, look, I'm not a victim. I'm a victor in Jesus Christ. The altar is open. I invite you to come. Live with 
Is anybody a victor in Jesus Christ this morning? Anybody want to come and declare that today? Father, I give you praise that we don't have to find our identity in anything but you. I am a child of God. I am redeemed. I am made whole. I am good. I am holy. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I have a destiny. I have a purpose. I have an eternity. And I have Jesus as my Savior. The Holy Spirit lives within me. 
I am powerful. I am able to do amazing things in this world. Much more than I could ask or think because the Holy Spirit is carrying me along. So today, Father, I declare, we declare, this church declares we are not victims. We are victors in Jesus Christ. These who have come forward, God, I thank you for their identity in you. I pray that you would drive it so deep down in their soul that they never lose it. And God, maybe there's some out here who just couldn't quite step forward today, but God, their identity is changing. Their identity is becoming more aligned with their, your purpose for them. And so, God, I pray you continue to move in their hearts. And, God, those watching online, maybe there's somebody out there who said that sermon spoke just to me, just to where I am, God. I pray that you would work in them and you would move in them, God. You would make them more like Jesus day by day. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. Thank you for your blessings on us. You are good. As the song says, you are a good, good father. And we declare that. In the presence of this place, in the presence of this world, we declare that you are good to us. Go with us as we leave this place. Help us to be more and more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray all these things. Rushwood said together, amen. I love you. There's nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. I hope you have a great week. I'll see you Wednesday night and next Sunday morning. God bless you. <laughs>